Yeah, and there's still suspicion that she didn't do it, big time. And, I, and my own self, I don't think she did. I can tell you that right now. I never questioned the fact that she actually had done it. I still don't think to this day that she's the one that actually did her but She didn't. I know that. I mean, she uh, probably wanted to, but she didn't do it. But there's nothing we can do about that now. You want to talk about what you mean by that? She covered for somebody else. So, Helen wouldn't hurt anybody. Never. I'm Jana Pruden, and this is the final episode of In Her Defense from the Globe and Mail. Episode 8 Freedom. A home on the farm. We haven't given up so far. In the beautiful world, in the beautiful, the beautiful, beautiful world. The theory that Helen didn't actually kill Miles comes up a lot. In a way, it would make sense. To go back to that old RCMP metaphor, if Helen could keep the whole responsibility pie for herself, she would. One thing I know about Helen is that she would do whatever she could to protect her kids. And it's never been exactly clear what happened on the farm that night. Daryl said he heard three gunshots, the pathologist found two bullets in Miles's brain. In court, Helen admitted to shooting Miles once, killing him instantly. But the agreed statement of facts is only what's accepted as truth by the court. It doesn't mean that's what actually happened. And a lot of people I talked to really didn't buy it. I should say that there's not any evidence that Helen didn't do it. It's more that people who know Helen can't imagine that she would be capable of it. But it came up enough that I started to question it myself. What if Helen wasn't the one who killed Miles? I asked Wes first. Maybe one of the things, the reasons people say that is they think that your mom is so nice that she wouldn't be capable of it. Someone said to me, you know, she wouldn't hurt a fly. They didn't think she could do it. They didn't watch my father mentally and physically abuse and torture my mother for day in, day out, for damn near 20 fucking years until she swallowed 600 fucking Tylenol 3s and started drinking in an attempt to end her life and then come crying to me after the fact that she was sorry she wasn't strong enough and she couldn't handle it, she had to leave me. I didn't tell you about those nights either. But there's about four of those instances where she tried to end her own life by pills and booze. And so yeah, she doesn't seem like she'd be that kind of person either. But you know what, when you got somebody that treats you like that, you're not much of any kind of person at that time.
yeah, you can be fixed, you can be healed after whatever. You can be changed back again. But during that time, you're not, the, you're not a person. You, you don't have feelings of your own. Then I asked Neil. You'll remember that he didn't want me to use his voice on this podcast, but he told me, everybody has their breaking point. He said, those people can think whatever they want to think, but they didn't live it. They weren't there. And he didn't want to talk anymore about that night. Finally, I had to ask Helen. It was a hard question. We'd gotten to know each other really well by then, and I worried it would upset her. But I also knew I had to ask. I put it to her in a roundabout kind of way. It's kind of a, I don't know if it's a weird question. It's maybe a bit of a delicate question. Everyone I've talked to doesn't think that you actually shot him. Well, that's all I can say is that's not the case. I think what it comes from is... Nobody believes that I could actually do something like that. It's, yes. No, I don't believe... I find it hard to believe myself that I actually done it. I, I don't have a 100% recollection of the event itself. I mean, I, I, I try to take myself back there and replay it, but I can't. There's, there's a place there where I... I do not have any recollection of actually doing it until it's immediately afterwards. So whether it was the gunshot itself that, from, you know, that's the only point I can remember on is afterwards and, you know, the hearing of the shot and then seeing them lying there dead and it's, I, it was just, Horrible, horrible, horrible. I, like in the state of shock that I was in, I, I, I don't know. It was, that was the worst fear I've ever felt. Like in, in almost, a, I don't know, because I, I couldn't, the not knowing how, like it happened, but how, it's, And at that point, it was just the two people there, myself and, and Miles. So, no, I don't know why people are putting Neil in the picture. I really don't. I think it's, you know, Lawrence said she, she couldn't hurt a fly. I do think it is that thinking <laughs> of that, that you, they just cannot imagine that you could ever do that. Well, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's... I was driven by something, you know, I guess for the X amount of years of the abuse and it could only take so much and you snap. I mean, I guess I just had enough. There's another thing that's been nagging at me, and it may be something you've thought about too. It's a big piece missing from this story. Why was Miles the way he was? What made him like that? And was there something that could have helped him? People told me Miles came from a good family. His brother Lee is well-liked and respected in the area, but Lee didn't want to speak with me. One person told me Miles had always been a bully, 
even when he was a kid. And Neil told me, I think he was just one of those naturally bad people. I'm sure there were people out there who liked Miles. But I'm also sure that the only people who knew what he was really like were Helen and the boys. Did you ever think about, in that period, why he was like that? You know, you you said his family seemed really nice and he seemed... Like, did you ever, I guess, kind of try to analyze what made him be like that? Oh, for sure, yeah. I don't know. Like I said, I, I... I felt sorry for him, and even, you know, years later, like, in this period, I still kind of felt sorry for him, because, you know, it's kind of pathetic, really. I mean, for a person to be that insecure and so full of self-pity, that just, it was poor me, and the world owed me a favor, like, I really, I, I couldn't understand where that come from, because, you know, looking at his parents and his upbringing, wasn't that bad. Did he ever show any kind of signs of remorse, ever apologize, ever, you know, seem to recognize that he wasn't treating his family well? No. I honestly think he thought it was just natural and the way it was. We'll never know exactly what happened in the chaos of that night on the farm, but I think it's clear everyone in the family played some role in it, whether disposing of the body and evidence or maintaining the lie of Miles's disappearance for six years. I also know that the truth was weighing on Helen and Neil, and I think it would have come out eventually. I don't, I can't really say a lot about how Daryl felt because he didn't really share a lot with me. But it, it bothered Neil. I, mm-hmm. The same as it bothered me, like it, it was our conscience that we're living with. This lie that we come up with that was, you know, is it ever going to come to an end or we'd have to live with this for the rest of our lives, mm-hmm. never knowing when something could serve us. Mm-hmm. That sounds like its own form of hell. Uh-huh. Why do you think Daryl went to the police? I don't know for sure, but... I've heard stories that he, you know, he was in trouble, because you know, he, he was into the drugs pretty heavy, and... He'd gotten himself into trouble and done it for a plea bargain to to get him oh, his own self out of the situation. I heard that story as well. Do you think that that's, do you believe that that's what happened? Yes, because I, I, it's... It's difficult for me because I honestly believe that I think if it was his conscience that was bothering him, he would have come to me. Or at least I I would have hoped that he would have. So I don't think it was that he couldn't live with himself anymore. It was just all about him. He needed to protect himself and he didn't care whether he buried his mother and brothers in the process. 
It's not like he just, it wasn't just myself and Neil and Wesley that were affected by this. You know, they're, Neil and Wesley's families were put in a difficult situation. And what was it like for you knowing that, that Daryl had done that? It was excruciating, and, I, and it still is. I, I don't even know. Like I, I don't want to say that I hate him. I mean, he is my son. I, I still care about him. You know, it's. But then, I, on the other hand, when I look at it, it's. He's not my son anymore. He said some things um, that I think made him look very innocent in the whole process. Oh, very much so, yes. Which is the hardest part of all of it, to, you know, how could have he done that? It's, <clears throat> if it was really bothering him that badly, he, you know, why did he lie about it? It's, that's why I don't think it was his conscience. It was, because if it was his conscience, how could he live with his own lies? Daryl didn't agree to speak with me, but in his fourth statement to RCMP, he said he came forward after he heard the police were investigating his father's disappearance again. Daryl said he didn't have anything to do with his father's death, or getting rid of the body or any evidence, and that he only went along with the story because his mother threatened him. He told Constable Carlson, I'm the kind of guy that if I did do something, I would tell you. I'm not afraid to go back to jail. If I do the crime, I do my time. Is there anything that you would want people to know about what happened? There's a lot of stories. I'm not going to tell them who's right, who's telling the truth, and who's wrong. I know who's right. I know who's lying. I know who did what. And I know what some people are going to say about me. I really don't give a fuck. And as about the whole right and wrong stuff, who's telling the truth, that's the stories that are discrepancy between me, my mother, and Neil, and... Daryl's story. So one of us is fucking full of shit and one is true. Daryl's story meaning it was a great house, there was no abuse, and then you guys all did this and it had nothing to do with him. Or specifically yes. Neil and your mother and he yes, had no and part Darryl of Daryl was just an innocent little bystander. Yeah. Daryl never helped bend and break legs to fit a six-foot person into a five, four-and-a-half-foot truck toolbox. He never did that, and he never fucking welded that lid shut, apparently. He never helped Neil dump it in the fucking dugout with the 300 pounds of tractor weights in the bottom of it, plus the 240-pound occupant. So you're looking at 500-pound toolbox. You've met my mother. She's strong. You think she can manhandle a 500-pound toolbox in a boat, 12-foot aluminum boat on a dugout that's 40 feet deep mm -hmm. by herself? 
Not happening. Do you think her and Neil could do it? Not a fucking chance. And finally, there's another theory I heard a lot from Helen's family and friends. Something they think would have changed everything about Helen's case. And you know what the sad part of this all is? If she wouldn't have just done it, called the police and said, this is what happened, she wouldn't be in jail today. My big question to both of them was, why in the hell did you do what you did? I mean, he threatened you so many times. Okay, you shot him. Call the police. Why did you do what you did? You know, that was bad. That's what really made a mess of things. If they'd have called the police right there, uh, I guarantee you, he had that handgun with him. It's self-defense. Why in that devil did they do what they did? But they panicked and they did it. Unfortunate. And they went to a lot of trouble to cover it up and from burying the car and getting rid of the body, the whole nine yards. It was bad, a bad, bad thing to do. Mm -hmm. You know? I see they all they could say was, oh, we just panicked. They didn't know what to do. So, but it was a mistake, that's for sure. What did you think about that? I had a hard time imagining how they could do what they did. Why do you want people to know more about what happened? Why did you agree to, to talk to me? And to... I'd like people to know the truth, if it's possible. I mean, over the years, like I keep saying, she couldn't report things. I mean, she'd have been beaten so bad, and the kids would have been too. So it was all kept dark secret in the closet. If it would have been reported, it would have been a whole different story, because the police would have been out there a lot. But then they would have been in a lot of trouble too. So, I don't know. I don't know. How do you win? This was a scenario I played out in my mind. What if Helen had just called the police right away that night and told them she shot Miles? After so many years of keeping the abuse a secret, she would have had to go into an interrogation room and tell constables Carlson and Pratch, or some other officers like them, all about the abuse she'd suffered. She'd have to say all those terrible and difficult things out loud for the very first time. And they would have to believe her. Would they have seen it as self-defense? Or would they have charged her with murder anyway? That too is something we will never know. Like what might have happened if Helen had decided to go to trial. Do you feel like if a jury heard and understood what you have lived through, that they would have seen that this was self-defense and they would have found you not guilty. I don't know. I can't, I don't know. I can't answer that because I don't know. At the time, maybe more so than now, like I said, I've done a, a lot of reading and it's uh, really soured my opinion of going to trial. I'm kind of glad that I didn't after some of the books that I've read, you know, Elizabeth Sheehy's book. You know, they weren't very sympathetic in those cases. During their sentencing, the judge said Helen and Neil were good people 
who reacted poorly when other options were open to them. I've thought a lot about what other options were open to Helen, given what she knew then. Options that didn't end up with her being killed by Miles or taking her own life. After all this time, I still don't know what they were. My concern is that, you know, whoever is listening to this podcast, uh, there are Helens in every community across this country. Every community. Rural communities, uh, big cities, small towns. um, They're everywhere. I think a lot of people care about Helen because people are basically good. And when they see injustice, they respond and they speak out. And so because of the fact that this violence is so unfortunately universal in our world, that when someone actually stands up for her right to live and her kids' rights to live, that that's something that so many people can relate to because I think lots and lots of women have thought about it. What, what do I do? How do I get out of this? How do I escape? What if he does this to me? What if he threatens this? What if he does that? What if he does this to the kids? These are questions that no one should ever have to ask of themselves, and yet they are asked on a daily and nightly basis in this country and around the world. Recently, I called the mother of Candy Benet, the victim of the first domestic homicide I ever covered, almost 23 years ago. I wanted to tell Candy's mother that I was going to talk about her on this podcast and that I've never forgotten her that I've thought about Candy's murder many times through the years. She told me how much Candy is missed and how devastating Candy's murder still is for her kids and her family and all those who loved her all these years later. As Candy's sister said, Rocky not only killed her and robbed her of her life, he unilaterally changed the lives of hundreds of people. Nothing really stays behind closed doors. That's the reason Helen agreed to talk to me, and why she wanted to share her story with you. Is this her? That looks like it could be her. I would say that's her. Yeah, I definitely think that's her. Okay, so I'm going to take my mic off and leave it on the dash for her. And, uh, yeah, that's definitely her. Hi. Great, how are you? Good. Do you want to sit in the car where it's warm? (laughs) Hi, Kim, how are you? I'm well, thank you. (laughs) <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's a cold one. It is. I walked up from My colleague Amber Bracken and I were sitting outside the Edmonton Institution for Women on an extremely cold winter day. It was just before Christmas 2022, the morning of Helen's first appearance before the National Parole Board. Helen was asking for unescorted passes, which would allow her to leave the prison alone for the first time. She'd be able to go back to Camrose to see her family, to be out there in the wide open country. Many of Helen's supporters and pen pals had watched on Zoom. Senator Kim Pate flew in from Ottawa to help Helen at the hearing. Amber and I were waiting for Kim to come outside and tell us how it went. 
Uh, she was incredibly nervous and uh, I mean, what else can I say? Mm -hmm. She was a bundle of nerves and, and you know, was very worried about the decision and worried about, uh, she, you know, she's worried about everybody else in her life as mm -hmm. typically Helen. Like she's thinking about her kids and her sisters and her niece and everybody and, um, and her friends and kept thanking everybody for their support and um, but said she was really nervous and and I you know I thought she did amazingly well during the hearing and I was extremely pleased that they made the decision they did it was the right decision In my humble opinion, the hearing was so different from Helen's interrogation and from her appearances in court Helen spoke about herself and her life with Miles and the board listened to her the parole board members acknowledged that Helen had committed a violent crime and that someone had died. But they also said that what Helen did had to be considered in the context of the abuse she'd been living with. The parole board also noted Helen had been diagnosed with battered woman syndrome in 2019, which had never been mentioned in court. The board said the outpouring of support for Helen played a huge part in her healing. And I believe I had, I, th I think in the end, the count was around 110 or 111 oh, wow. letters of support, including, you know, Sharon's neighbors, including people who were customers at, uh, the, of um, Helen's former employer, including, you know, people from all across the country, people wow. who have picked, you know, because of the media attention, because of your story, as well as uh, your, um, your initial story. Um, and and the, uh, the attention to the appeal, the number mm -hmm. of people who wrote. Uh, and they ranged from people, women who escaped violence themselves, uh, police officers, social workers, retired teachers. The parole board not only granted Helen temporary passes, but went a step further and pre-approved her for day parole. That meant Helen knew the day she would get out of prison. When um, the decision came down, Helen looked to me, I looked at her, and we were both like, you know, I, you know, I think we both registered, wow, it worked, <laughs> it, it happened, it's, you know. The smile on her face, the, the, the minute we were all done, she sat there very stoically throughout the, the hear, like after the decision, and, but I asked her what she was going to do this afternoon, she said she was going to be letting it all sink in. It's still overwhelming for me. Like, it's just, you know, I'll, I'll sit down and I'll start going through some of these letters and some of the stuff that it's just like, wow, like, how did this happen? That, why? I, you know, I, I'm not an important person. I'm just, I'm just me. I, like, where's all this coming from? Well, you are an important person, <laughs> I would argue. No, I don't think so. I'm just an ordinary person. An ordinary person that uh, yeah, made some bad choices and that went turned to worse. And I, I don't even know how to fast track it to put it into words. I mean, you're a person that had a lot of really bad things happen to you. Yeah, bad luck, I guess. I don't know. But I guess I can't really have done it. You can't really call it luck either. You know, it's... 
Maybe a lot of bad things happened, but I'm the only one who could have changed that. Maybe the wrong choice to start with. Kind of set the wheel in motion. I don't know. I don't know how to look at it. I don't know how to put it into words. Like, I don't want somebody else's pity. Poor, like, it's so poor you. I feel so sorry for you. Like, it's, it's not about that. It's very unfortunate how things turned out, yes, but it's definitely been, uh, yeah, quite the life experience so far. And it's not over yet either. Helen got out on parole in March 2023 and started working at A1 Rentals again. Amber and I stopped in to see her one of her first days back at work. Hi there. <laughs> Hi, Helen. Hi. <laughs> Good, how are you? I'm a little better now. Yeah, boy, it's funny. I was saying to my editor, and I was telling him we were going to stop in and see you, and I was said, like, this is the first time I'm going to see you in real life. Yeah. <laughs> you look lighter and happy much, it's just much, like much lighter it's so wonderful to see you out here yeah helen said people had been coming into a1 just to welcome her home they didn't even buy anything they just came to say hi when we saw helen she was feeling good and confident but she was also taking it slow yeah because i was just kind of worried if i push myself too much i'm gonna have a setback or shut mm-hmm. down or something and I, I don't want that yeah and he's really supportive. So yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It's not just like coming back to normal life. This is like the first time in your entire life that. Mm-hmm. So I'm not looking over my shoulder anymore. Yeah, six years were pretty rough. Yeah. Over and done, and only. One way to go, and that's up. All for the better. But it's coming. Every day is getting better, and every time I push myself to do something different, it gets easier after I've done it. I talked to Helen again the other day. It was her birthday. She told me that on her way to work that morning, her favorite song came on the radio. It doesn't get played much these days. It's an old Willie Nelson number called Nothing I Can Do About It Now. It's about accepting all the things you did and didn't do, about forgiving the things you can forgive, about surviving and moving forward. It felt like a sign. Helen is 59 years old. And for the first time in her life, she's free. In Her Defense was made by Kasia Mihailovic and me, Jana Pruden. Amber Bracken did our field recording and the photos of Helen and her family you can see online at tgam.ca slash inherdefense. In Her Defense was mixed by David Crosby. It was recorded at McEwen University by Emily Rubayita, Sheena Rossiter, and Sasha Stanoyevich. Our executive editor was Angela Pachenza. We owe a big thanks to head of visual journalism Matt Frainer and head of editing Ian Bokoff. 
Our theme song was The Fighter by Jen Grant, arranged for this show by David Crosby. You can email me personally at jprudeen at globeandmail.com. If you're experiencing domestic violence and want to talk to someone, you can find resources and your nearest shelter at sheltersafe.ca. This podcast is dedicated to all those who have fought domestic violence and those who are still fighting. A home on the fire We haven't given up so far A home on the fire We haven't given up so far Take care, and thank you for listening. Oops. A little bit of air. A little Duke's a hazard there. As we're driving Evan's car. As I'm driving Evan's car. I don't know if this is apocryphal, but I heard... Oh, shoot. I missed the turn. Uh-oh. It's okay. I'll just Missed the around. turn. Um, but I heard that... Should I be navigating mm, for I'm you? Okay. You're doing everything. I'm just sitting here <laughs> chitty-chatting. Okay, wait. One day last summer, there was a little party for Helen at a farm outside Camrose. It was an absolutely perfect prairie day. There were kids running around and tables full of home-cooked food, cows and pigs grazed in the fields. On the guest list that day were family members and old friends and other people who'd helped and supported Helen, some of whom she'd been writing to for years but never met in person. There were survivors of domestic violence, people who heard about Helen in the news and saw themselves in her story, then reached out to see how they could help. There was a senator doing dishes, a defense lawyer and her husband sitting at a table in the shade, a group of women who had asked God every day to reduce Helen's sentence and thought their prayers had been answered. And there was Helen, in the middle of it all, in a t-shirt and a crisp new pair of Wranglers, smiling. Okay, well, here we are anyway, we're in the right place. And... Helen has invited us to come just as people, not as reporters. And she asked us to not record, not take any pictures. Um, and so that's what we're going to do. We're going to a party that our listeners aren't invited to. <laughs> Feels kind of mean to them. It does feel kind of mean to them, but I'm... Um, I'm excited for Helen to have this, like, next phase in her life, you know? She opened up a lot of things and, well, a lot of things came out about her without her even agreeing to open up and then she did agree to talk about it and, um, you know, at some point her public story will be over and I think a lot about how this is 
this is really going to be, this is the first time in her life that she's ever really been free, you know, certainly um, since she was a teenager, since she met Miles. And I'm sure that'll have a lot of challenges. And um, yeah, I'm pretty excited to see how she's doing today. Change in the law comes slowly and incrementally. That is its nature. It responds to changes in society. It seldom initiates them.